going to just take a little break from our studies in the book of Acts over the next couple of weeks. I'm going to read from Luke 19 and beginning at verse 28, touching again on the account that Sandy shared with the children. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethpage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? Tell him, The Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, his owners asked them, Why are you untying the colt? They replied, The Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now, it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. So reads. God's precious word, we thank you. turn to it. It's good to have it open in front of you. Holy Week, which today begins, begins with Jesus riding into Jerusalem, knowing everything that lay ahead. And I would encourage you all in this coming week to pick one of the Gospels and just find time even if it means you've been off Facebook for 20 minutes or putting down your favourite newspaper or your favourite TV programme or whatever and just spend time reading the accounts surrounding our Lord's last week. All four of the Gospels relate this riding into Jerusalem incident. However, it's actually Luke who gives us certain pieces of information that the others don't. And it is for that reason that I want us to consider Luke's account, but we'll very well make reference to the others also. I have really been challenged uh, in study this week of this particular passage. The context is that Jesus has been 
teaching a parable. And that parable has had constant reference to the kingdom and to the king. Verse 11, verse 12, verse 14, verse 15, verse 27. And now, here he is, he sets off to Jerusalem as the king. But not the the kind of king that the people wanted. And I want us to consider four things from these verses this morning. We'll see there was ascending, there was a, there's singing, there's weeping, and there's judging. Sending. Notice how Luke tells us that Jesus went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. See, brothers and sisters, it's important that as we enter this holy week, that we see and we understand and we fully grasp that in the whole Easter narrative, Jesus is in control. That he takes the lead. He knows what he is doing. He knows what lay ahead. And he sets off from Jericho to Jerusalem with what initially appears to be a small band of disciples and as he nears the villages of Bethpage and Bethany what he does is he issues a command to two of his disciples sending sending them on he tells them as you enter the village you'll find a colt there untie it bring it to me and if anybody asks well what are you untying it for tell them the Lord needs it Luke tells us that it was a colt, one that had never been ridden, never been used, as it were, for secular use. And although Luke doesn't mention it in his account, Matthew tells us, who who wrote, and remember Matthew wrote primarily to a Jewish audience, Matthew sees this as a fulfillment of Old Testament scripture, particularly Zechariah 9 verse 9. You see, there is nothing haphazard about this triumphant entry. It has all been carefully planned. How did Jesus know about the cult being there and that things would be as he said it would be? How did he know? Was it divine knowledge? Or had it been prearranged? We, we, we don't know. So let us rest in the fact that things were as Jesus said they would be. And that is always the case. So they go. And sure enough, people ask, well, what are you doing with this? And they say, the Lord needs it. And they bring back the coat. And they throw their cloaks on it. And notice carefully what Luke tells us. Put Jesus on. Jesus didn't mount it himself. They put put Jesus on it. And this procession towards Jerusalem gathers momentum. It is almost regal-like. The one main difference is being a king riding 
on a humble animal, a donkey. It speaks of a Messiah. It speaks of a king. Not of one, as one writer says, of raw power, but one of humility and one of service. This is our servant king. However, it is in this sending of these two disciples, and just as importantly, the responding, that really challenged me this past week. Here are two disciples of Jesus, and they are being asked to do something. And as they hear this command, and as they obey it, they, as I said, find things just as Jesus said. And here is the really, really simple to apply point, but hard to work it out. Or hard and it's working out, sorry. Not hard to work out because it's really simple. It's this. As disciples of Jesus, are we as obedient to his commands? Are we willing to go where he sends are we willing to do what he says? It's a really simple application, isn't it? Are we living it out? We're not being asked to go into Bucky or Burkhead or whatever and find a donkey tied and bring it back. But we are told to go out into a lost world. We are told to love one another. We are told to not just believe but to be baptized. Are we obedient to where Jesus sends us and to what Jesus says to us? The other phrase that struck me is that phrase at the end of verse 31. Notice what it says, where Jesus says, the Lord needs it. It got me thinking, and I want to be very careful here how I put this over because I don't want to be thought of I don't want I won't I don't want it sorry to be thought of that without us God can do nothing. All right? Esther four fourteen reminds us of that where, where you may if we remain silent or in this context didn't go, then relief and deliverance will come from another place. Yet, brothers and sisters, there is a sense of the Lord needs. He needs us, whatever it might be. And again, here's the challenge. Are we willing not just to be sent, but are we willing to give to the Lord that which he needs, whatever that it might be? It's not very good English, but I hope you know what I mean. If we continue, for instance, in the theme of sending, and we tie it in with the Great Commission. There is, in one sense, the truth that the Lord needs us to be willing to go. Yes, even greater is our need of him. I, I acknowledge that. But nonetheless, what is it that Paul says in Romans 10? 
How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can they preach unless they are set? There's an awful lot of how cans there, isn't there? And again, the simple application is that we need to go. The Lord needs us. We are his hands. We are his feet. We're his mouth. And here are these two disciples hearing Jesus' command, sent out by Jesus to accomplish what Jesus needed. Brothers and sisters, that is a mark of a disciple. Sending. As the procession continues and people join in and more cloaks are laid on the ground, notice secondly that we read of singing or praising. As Jesus passes the Mount of Olives, we are told that the whole group of disciples began, notice what Luke tells us, joyfully, joyfully praising God for all the miracles they had seen. I think it's interesting and I think it's important that Luke mentions the disciples as the source of praise and also gives us the reason for their praise. Because as the crowds gather, that that appears to be, if you like, something of a a catalyst for, for the praise from the larger crowds that all the other Gospels tell us began to join in. But again, for a moment, I want us to focus on what Luke tells us. The disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for the miracles they had seen. And let's just pick up a few things from from that very quickly. Firstly, the praise was coming from the disciples. That is, it was coming from those who knew him. You cannot sing about salvation song from the heart if you do not know salvation. Notice also, how the praise was joyful. Notice how also the praise was loud. Singing from the heart because you know Jesus should be both joyful and loud. Never mind if it's not tuneful. Our sung worship should be a witness. Here's so, here's... Oh, I've got the hymn. I'm so happy. Here's the reason why. He's taken my sins away. He's living in my heart. We're to to joyfully proclaim it. We're to loudly proclaim it. And then we see that they had a reason. And in this case, the reason given is for all the miracles that they had seen. Well, let's just press the pause button there. What have you got this morning to praise God for? What miracle, what act of provision would get you joyfully, loudly praising our God? Let me tell you that if you don't know, the greatest of all miracles is knowing Jesus as Lord and Savior, of having your sins forgiven, of having peace with God, of having an assurance of a heaven gained and a hell shunned, of knowing the fullness of the Holy Spirit. Bless the Lord O my soul, and all, 
all that is within me. Praise his holy name. And we're not finished because also notice how their praise, notice how their songs are based on scripture. Psalm 118 it is, it's quoted. They actually even use, notice the second part of it, they even use the angel songs that announced the birth of Jesus. Look too. I, I, I said this before, but let me reiterate it, brothers and sisters. Good songs are nothing to do with the day of when they were written. It's about content. Imagine being there that day. Exuberant praise. And notice how Jesus, as it were, allows it. He he permits this public demonstration. There there were times when he didn't. But he allows it. He, He permits this public demonstration. Because now everybody is to see and hear that Jesus is the Messiah. Make way, make way for Christ. Forget the rest of it, but we sang it. Joy. What elation. What exuberance. However, we see that all were not happy. Enter stage left the Pharisees. They come to Jesus and and they say, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Again, it's actually only Luke that records this piece of information. See, they knew that they couldn't silence them. So they asked Jesus to do it. And Jesus tells them, even if they keep quiet, the stones would cry out. That is to say, the praise of God can never be stifled. We were looking at Psalm 19 this past week in in, in our growth group. The heavens declare the glory of God. Day after day, they pour forth speech. One writer makes a point that that this remark is actually important because creation speaks when an injustice needs to be avenged. Think on Genesis 4, verse 10. Your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. James 5, verse 4. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workmen who moved your fields are crying out against you. And I think there is also something of a rebuke here for these religious leaders. Because here is, if you like, the ordinary people who have got it. They've got it as far as Jesus' identity is concerned. And yet those who should, the Pharisees, the religious people haven't. And what do they want to do? They want to stifle the praise of those who know Jesus. And they want Jesus dead. 
The situation is filled with singing and with noise and with joy and with exuberance. You notice that as Luke's account tells us, it's also tinged with sadness. Because not only is there sending, not only is there singing, we read of weeping. And as Jesus approaches Jerusalem, and as he gets to that point where you can actually look over the whole city, it's a bit like climbing up Lady Hill and kind of looking over Elgin. View is probably not as pretty or scenic, but it's the same kind of idea. There was a vantage point where Jesus could stop and he could look over the whole city. And as he hears, on the one hand, the praise of his disciples, what we find them doing is weeping for the city and weeping for its people. Weeping for those who have turned their back on him. To those who have rejected or refused to see him as the true Messiah. I think we have here not just something, but the heart of Jesus. His compassion, his love, his concern for those who do not know him or who have rejected him. He stops and he looks out and he weeps. We read once before of Jesus weeping at the grave of Lazarus. And now here he weeps and he actually laments. If you, if you, even you, if you had only known, if you had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it's hidden from your eyes. I I have found this particular part to be so challenging this week, especially as I asked myself the question, what do I see and what do I feel when I look out over the city of Elgin and the surrounding area? When in here, we can praise the Lord for all his goodness. Yet outside, there are thousands, tens of thousands, who have never heard or who have rejected the claims of Jesus. Where Where are my tears? What am I doing? How how am I praying? I can recall as a young Christian being in prayer meetings where growing men and women would literally weep over the lost unashamedly. 
hear my heart, brothers and sisters. I'm not trying to be emotional here. Neither am I trying to guilt trip. But do we have anything like the passion and the care and the love for the lost that Jesus shows here? We can get hit up about so many things. We can get annoyed and worked up and about this or about that. What about the lost? What about the lost? I don't know what it would mean. But I found myself praying this week. Soften my heart, Lord. Soften my heart. From all indifference, set me apart. To feel your compassion to weep with your tears. Come, soften my heart, Lord. Soften my heart. Why? Why is it all important? Well, notice finally, we read of judging. You know, Judgment, and especially the judgment of God, is not a very pleasant subject. People would rather brush it under the carpet. However, brothers and sisters, it is one that cannot be ignored if one wants to be true to what the Bible teaches. And here... Jesus is speaking of a coming judgment upon the people that have rejected the claims of Jesus. And that causes Jesus to weep. And the details that Jesus outlines for us here, or look outlines for us that Jesus speaks in verses 43 and 44, they actually came to pass. They came to pass in AD 70. When the Romans, under Titus of Rome, overran the city and destroyed it, including the temple. If you had only known. And what we see here is that judgment brings Jesus pain. He weeps. For the city. The opportunity and the offer for peace is there. But it's been refused. And so the judgment will come. And in God's grace, it would not come for maybe another 60, 65 years or so, whatever. But it came. And brothers and sisters, judgment is real, it's inevitable, it's painful. And it's tragic. And these words of Jesus came to pass, as I said, in AD 70. But you see, the Bible, the Bible speaks to us of another judgment that is sure to come. The Bible tells us of a time 
when we will all, each one of us, stand before God and give an account for our life. And the only way that we will come through that judgment is by putting our trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. These are heavy, weighty matters. They are matters, friends, of not just life and of death, but of eternal destiny. And the whole talk of a coming judgment may even make some feel uncomfortable. That doesn't make it any less true or certain. What you do individually, what you do regarding the claims of Jesus Christ is essential. And I stand before you this morning with no other agenda, no other desire than seeking to make you aware of the importance of receiving Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. The people here on that first Palm Sunday had many opportunities and they ignored them and they paid the terrible price. I don't want anybody going out that door this morning saying, if only I knew. What about you this morning? Forget those sitting beside you, okay? Forget them for a moment. What about you? If you are a disciple of Jesus, are you being obedient to his sending? Are you singing his praises for all that he has done for you? And are you weeping for those who have yet don't know him? Or maybe you're in that perilous situation, and it is a perilous situation, where you're not a disciple of Jesus Christ. You have never as yet turned to Christ for forgiveness. You may have come along to this church for months, years. This might be your first time, I don't know. But you know that you have never truly repented and trusted Jesus. Then I urge you, I plead with you this morning, do not go on rejecting him. But even now, even now, turn to him. Confess your sin and in his grace and his love and in his mercy, he'll forgive you. And right now, you can know joy, peace, forgiveness and assurance. And you can certainly sing joyfully and loudly 
that grace takes my sin. Where do you stand? Where do you stand? Whatever age you are, whatever age you are, young or old, where do you stand in relation to Jesus Christ? Don't go out that door this morning thinking, if only I knew. If you want to speak about these matters, then speak to me or speak to someone that you know who's a Christian. Let's pray. Father God, these are weighty matters. Matters not just of life and death, but of our eternal destiny. We thank you that, as an old Tim tells us, there is a way back to God from the dark paths of sin. And at Calvary's cross is where it begins when we come as a sinner to Jesus. And that's the way that we all need to come, Lord. I pray for those of us who profess to know you and follow you and love you. That you would help us to be obedient to where you would send and what you would say. That you would help us to joyfully, loudly praise you. Lord, that you would give us a love and a compassion for the lost. That you would soften our hearts. And Lord, without in any way at all sounding judgmental, I pray for anyone that's in this gathering this morning that as yet has never turned to Jesus. They may know the gospel. They may read their Bible. They may sing the songs. But they've never as yet truly repented and trusted you. Please, O God, by the power of your Holy Spirit, even where they sit now, convict them and draw them to you. And may there be rejoicing in heaven over those who repent. These things we pray for our good and for your glory. In Jesus' name. Amen. Here is love vast.